Views expressed during Impact Cafe are those of the panelists and do not represent the views of Franklin Energy or AM Conservation. Welcome to Impact Cafe, a podcast from Franklin Energy and AM Conservation that is dedicated to discussing all things related to energy innovation and impact in communities across North America. Historically, state regulators and policymakers have worked alongside utilities to drive the adoption of clean and energy efficient technology amongst homeowners and businesses. But today's climate crisis requires a different approach. The federal government has stepped forward with bold programs and tax incentives to accelerate the energy transition. On today's episode, we bring together industry experts David Terry, Executive Director of the National Association of State Energy Offices, Michelle Grancy, Director of the State of Minnesota Energy Office, and Rory Christian, Chair of the New Public Service Commission and CEO of the New York State Department of Public Service. They discuss how the recent federal investment is impacting state governments, regulators, and utilities nationwide. Join us to learn how federal funding is shaping the future of clean energy. Enjoy the show. Hello, good afternoon, good morning, depending on where you are. Thank you so much for joining us today for this installment of the Franklin Energy Impact Cafe. Uh, We are really excited to be gathered here. We've got a great panel today. Uh, We are going to be talking about and exploring how a federal investment is shaping the clean energy future. Uh, This should prove to be pretty informative and engaging as many of our topics have been in the past, and you can always find the prior recordings of the Impact Cafe, and of course, this one will be posted to our website as well and available in a podcast uh, version. So let me just remind you that today we invite you to post questions into the Q&A during the session, and we will do our best to get to as many of those as we can. So without further ado, let me introduce our three excellent panelists that we have with us today. First, we have Rory Christian as designated chair of the New York Public Service Commission, and and he was designated into that role in September 2021 by New York Governor Kathy Hochul. Chair Christian also functions as the CEO of the New York Department of Public Service, overseeing all the staff that support the commission. The New York State Legislature originally appointed him to the commission in May of 2021, and he has an esteemed esteemed career that has spanned uh, roles within a regulated utility, the city government in New York, and as a clean energy advocate. Next, we have Michelle Grancy, who is director of the State Energy Office in Minnesota. Uh, She sits inside the State Department of Commerce there in Minnesota in her role. Uh, As director, she joined that state agency in 2009, and she leads the efforts around program development and evaluation, energy policy, clean energy technologies, training, and conflict resolution. And finally, we have David Terry. David is the executive director of the National Association of State Energy Officials, often known as NASIO, uh, and he has worked in a variety of capacities at this organization since 1996. Mr. Terry leads NASIO's policy action and programs in support of the 56 governor-designated state and territory energy directors and their offices. Uh, David has participated in governor-led policy meetings, testified before U.S. congressional committees, and presented at the White House and International Energy Forums. And I want to thank you all for joining us today. And I failed to introduce myself, but uh, I am Marissa Yuchin, and I am the Chief Commercial Officer here at Franklin Energy. Uh, And again, so glad to have this panel here today. And again, we're going to talk about the clean energy landscape uh, and how we chart this path forward, especially with uh, this infusion of of federal uh, policy and funding that we are seeing today. So, we know that the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act was signed in November of last year, uh, and of course, the American Rescue Plan Act in March, uh, shortly, you know, a few months prior to that. And both of these bills have unleashed huge amounts of incremental funding, much of it flowing to the states. So, let me just start here with this first question for our panelists. 
Now, given each of your roles, when a big bill like this, especially with a lot of incremental funding, comes in, what happens next for you and your organization once a bill like this is passed? So what are your first steps uh, that you have taken uh, or that you plan to take? And so, David, let me turn this to you first uh, from the perspective of NASIO. Thanks, Marissa, and thanks to you and Franklin for putting this uh, uh, a podcast session together. It's great to be on the panel with Chairman Christian and Director Grancy as well. Um, I think um, maybe two distinct uh, paths here, one on the, um, uh, on the ARPA bill uh, related to COVID relief. Um, that uh, bill had over $350 billion, half of which went out to state and local governments last June, the other half coming this June. So um, there are uh, additional dollars flowing, which I think is something important to remember. We've been working with our members on the energy aspects of that. These are very flexible funds, largely at the direction of the governor and to the extent the state legislatures, and many of them are directing portions of these funds to bill repayment, for example, uh, low-income energy efficiency, um, school-related activities. There are additional subsets of funds. So we've been working on that path uh, for nearly a year now, uh, trying to describe to states uh, what we see as best practices that one state and another is doing with portions of these funds. And great examples from uh, states ranging from Minnesota and New York to Vermont and uh, North Carolina and Connecticut and many other states. So our role in that way has been very much one of sharing what states are doing and what they can do but also working with U.S. Treasury to expand the guidance and improve the guidance that they've offered in what states are allowed to do, particularly in the energy space. And we made a little progress there, but that's one of the key roles we have is that state-federal interface um, on guidance when large amounts of funding come through. The infrastructure bill is, it couldn't be more different uh, than the ARPA funds in that um, many elements of the infrastructure bill and the energy components we've worked on for five, even 10 years. And the energy offices uh, and NASIO uh, working together with other uh, state colleagues have been working on portions of that bill for a very long time. I think one of the ways that we tried to prepare our members is as those pieces of the bill came together, reminding them where they came from, the rationale for them, were they still relevant? Um, Once the bill was in pretty final form, which really goes back to uh, August of last year, we began educating our members through national calls, regional calls, and then topical calls by committee, and I'll give a few examples quickly in a moment, um, describing the provisions the amounts of money uh, that were in them, what we thought would be final when the bill ultimately passed in November, um, which is very much what happened. It passed almost in identical form to those, uh, those early pieces. I think one of the challenges that we have is I think many people uh, thought about the infrastructure bill as being similar to the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, or ARA, that happened in the 08-09 period, where the energy portions of the funding were several really large chunks, really. There were other pieces, but they were very large formula funds for state and local governments. Um, and not easy, but certainly flexible and manageable. The infrastructure bill energy elements are generally speaking in much, uh, many more packages, some 30 to 40 provisions. Uh, we cover in the summary we have on our webpage uh, uh, for educational purposes for our members, 16 different sectors, electricity, buildings, manufacturing, lots of grid and transmission pieces. So we've been trying to break those down, um, get the states starting to think about how they might utilize these funds Large portions of the funding are competitive and not formula. Uh, There is a significant formula amount for uh, low-income weatherization energy efficiency, uh, weatherization assistance program, and the U.S. state energy program at $500 million that will go out and formula to the states for a range of purposes, from efficiency to transmission distribution planning and other purposes. And one last very large formula chunk uh, that is still being defined by the U.S. Department of Energy around grid resilience, and that's $2.5 billion that will go out by formula. The formula has to be determined still um, to the states for use um, in that area. So we've been really just breaking these down. It, it becomes a bit of a deer in headlights, at least when I look at it sometimes, we stop and, and we pull it apart. Our members do address nearly every one of these 16 sectors, buildings, transportation, the grid, et cetera. Um, so it is a, a daunting task, but I'll pause there. That's how we've been handling it. Uh, we do have an implementation meeting coming up in February in Washington, DC, and then in-person regional meetings on those same topics in each of the six regions of the country. 
very helpful. Thanks, David, to break that out. And, and you're right, it's complex because there are many pieces and many points of intervention and, and to your point, competitive you know, versus formula and trying to figure all that out. So, Michelle, let me turn to you um, as a recipient and being in the role of probably really relying on Terry and his team to help help guide you. So you, you've, you've participated probably in committees, gotten some good insight from his team. Now, what, what, do, what do you and your team do as a, as a first few steps? Sure. Thank you, Marissa, and thank you for having me on this panel. Um, so the state energy offices, by design, are deployment mechanisms. Right. So we have a history of receiving legislation, direction, and um, sometimes fairly prescribed, sometimes loosely prescribed. And so it's a pretty, I think, straightforward process that we tend to utilize in the development of any initiative, but in particular thinking about the Infrastructure Act. Um, we first uh, pull together stakeholders, both internally and externally. Um, as you know, the clean energy revolution is one that really has expanded uh, across multiple state agencies, local jurisdictions, et cetera. Um, so one of our key elements really is developing uh, and establishing work groups around energy grid resiliency, around energy technologies, around energy training and education, and then also participating in transportation, water, these other sectors, as David was mentioning. It looks different for us if we're talking formula or competitive in that the formula dollars um, provide for us, and, and I guess in both cases, provide for us really an opportunity um, to focus in on barriers that currently are not being addressed. So for instance, with weatherization, when the ARPA funds came in, um, in fast form for our office through a LIHEAP transfer or low income home energy assistance program transfer, we more than doubled the funding that we historically have. Um, at a time in which there's contractor shortages and supply chain issues. So one of the key pieces for us has been looking into flexibilities around that funding to address barriers that we otherwise wouldn't be able to address. So one example being, we have a small pilot program in the remediation of asbestos insulation. Now through that LIHEAP transfer, we're able to address all households that have asbestos insulation insulation in order to uh, remove that barrier to weatherization. With the infrastructure, we have some more time, um, though it seems like it's just uh, going very quickly, to really look at ways with weatherization that we can stabilize funding. One of the challenges with that program is that funding will increase significantly and then drop and increase and drop. And that's difficult for developing a contractor base that can depend on the work and have that consistency of service. So our hope with the infrastructure funds is to be able to utilize that funding in a way to stabilize the programmatic implementation over time. On the state energy program side, which we also oversee in Minnesota, it really is more about looking at systemic changes and opportunities around energy assurance, around energy planning, clean energy planning, both at the state and local level, um, energy access and the modernization of energy data systems, um, and really thinking about project assistance as well for the support of local units of government, tribal nations, um, disadvantaged communities, et cetera. So finally, I'll just mention that in our process of pulling people together, we're also really working to prioritize what funding can look like for Minnesota, uh, recognizing that, as David pointed out, there's a lot of competitive opportunities and, and there's a lot of competition. So prioritizing and determining where um, we could best utilize funds to bring into the state to meet those needs uh, is a key aspect of our, our early work together. No, no shortage of work for sure. Um, let me ask just out of curiosity, uh, when this kind of money comes in, do you remain the same size team that you were before or are you able to add capacity to your team? Because that's um, a lot that you mentioned. 
It, it really depends on the state. We're fortunate right now that we do not have a hiring freeze. Um, state energy offices tend to run very lean. So if you have an expert in an area, you have one expert in that area. Um, and when it comes to expanded programs in order to implement effectively, you really need to be able to increase your staff capacity. Um, so currently we are increasing our capacity. I know some state um, energy offices have limitations around that. And so they tend to uh, change more into project management, shifting all funds outside of the state. We like to do kind of a collaborative approach in order to bring everybody into the conversation. Sounds good. Okay, Chairman Christian. So we've, ha we've heard sort of what happens at Washington to support Michelle and her colleagues around the country. Uh, and now these funds are flowing to the state and you are regulating utilities. Uh, and how does that work? Tell me a little bit about how this flows into uh, a state public utilities commission. Okay, well, um, Let's start with the ARP. So as, as David mentioned earlier, um, those funds have supported home energy assistance programs. Um, they've offset it, the need for uh, the costs for energy uh, for those in need. Um, so we've addressed uh, some low income issues as well with that. It's also supported education, Medicaid, emergency medical assistance. Uh, I look at the ARP as largely foundational towards New York's COVID-19 response and recovery efforts. Uh, basically, they wouldn't be as robust as they are without ARP funds. And, and you know, under my regulation uh, with the Public Service Commission of New York State, uh, where that hits most is particularly with arrears, which is uh, utility arrears, which is larger, becoming a very large issue right now, um, as we have the ongoing moratorium in place. Um, we don't allow for utility shutoffs at this time, and um, so arrears are continuing to grow. Uh, but it's also helpful in the form of home energy assistance programs, um, heating, uh, and uh, providing funds to pay those bills as needed. Um, so the ARP is on one side of the equation. Of great interest to us going forward um, is the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. Uh, it definitely goes a step further in that you know its infrastructure focus is very much aligned with what the state is trying to accomplish from a clean energy and environmental and climate perspective. Um, as many of you may know, New York has some fairly aggressive goals. Um, you know, we seek to have an 85% reduction in greenhouse gases by 2050, um, have a zero emission electric grid by 2040, and we have significant uh, goals regarding offshore wind, energy storage, and solar that are incremental to help us get along the way and achieve those major milestones. Um, so we look at the infrastructure funds as a way to help fund things that we've already planned, uh, ongoing efforts, existing initiatives. Um, case in point, uh, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act is supporting investments in electric vehicles. Um, we recently approved, we the PSC, um, an EV make ready program incentivizing the deployment of over, uh, I want to say 50,000 charging ports throughout the state. Um, this would be both public and private, largely public. Um, and this would represent a tenfold increase in non-residential charging point ports by 2025. That's pretty significant. And this is infrastructure we need, not just to ensure that as consumers purchase these EVs, they have a place to charge, um, but it fits in well with our larger overall plan for uh, integrating renewables and having that diverse um, flexible grid, um, uh, ensuring that all consumers are part of that. Uh, so in, in addition to that, from the energy perspective, we also regulate uh, communications to some degree. And, you know, one of the main things that we're also using the IJA funds for um, is expanding the broadband network in the state. Um, you know, I've, we've, we're all experiencing this now, you know, using broadband from our homes uh, outside of work, you know, ensuring that we have uh, reliable high-speed internet access is uh, critical. And, you know, Terry and I were just talking earlier about some of the struggles he's experiencing. We'll catch up on that later, Terry. Um, but funds are definitely being put forward towards providing high-speed internet access, particularly in rural communities that currently go without. Um, and in addition to providing those funds uh, to build out the infrastructure, we're also putting funding towards lowering the cost. Um, internet 
high speed internet currently at the low end is around $60 a month in New York State. And with funds uh, available through the federal government, we're able to provide an incentive to lower that cost uh, to about $30 a month, uh, a $30 incentive to cut the cost in half roughly. Um, and this is in addition to additional incentives to purchase um, computers, uh, laptops, tablets uh, for those in need. Um, and of course, this is all income eligible. Um, so you, if you're a recipient of uh, SNAP benefits, WIC, um, if you live in affordable housing, you're pretty much eligible to receive these funds. So these funds go a long way in both helping build the infrastructure we need for the future, uh, but also bridging the divide between the disadvantaged communities and those who already benefited from many of these uh, improvements over the years. So these funds go a very long way uh, towards improving the lives of all New Yorkers and creating a more equitable environment for everyone. And uh, they're very much welcome and appreciated. So, I mean, it's a great example of, you know, a state that has a very clear roadmap uh, from a policy perspective uh, when funding like this comes along. I mean, you, you are you're ready to go uh, because you, you've done that planning in advance, which is really interesting. Um, it made me think when you were talking about those existing programs or policies, really, uh, Chair Christian, and, and Michelle, I'm curious your perspective on this, too. Um, with various forms of funding available, so... Chair Christian, you, know, you uh, regulate the utilities, they run efficiency programs, they have ratepayer funds, there may be tax credits available. Uh, Michelle, in your state, you, you'll be putting out uh, incentive dollars, I'm sure, to get customers to participate in programs or augment WAP, as we've been talking about the weatherization program. So how, how, do we, how do we make this work? When this infusion of money comes in, how do we stack these benefits in a way um, where it's it really drives that participation that we want to see and the, and the change and the progress that we want to see. Well, I, I want to think, I'm thinking back to my experience with ARA funds, um, uh, which I try not to think about too often. Um, but I, I compare that to what we're going through today. And, and a lot of that, um, you know, we, we had to develop the projects from the ground up. Um, we had to be pretty prescriptive in what we were doing. And then we had to use the money in a pretty constrained amount of time. So it wasn't as easy to spend the money, even though there was lots of it going around. It was very difficult to utilize. So I, I'd say first off, uh, you know, the best thing for us is ensuring that um, we're flexible in how we can use the funds, that there's flexibility built into the funding. Um, the more flexible it is, the easier it is to move from one program to another to adapt over time. Um, you know, this funding isn't coming in, you know, one lump sum dropped in our hands and we get to use it as we see fit. It's going to be trickling in over time and being able to course correct as projects move forward and we learn from those experiences, I think is essential uh, for any program um, as it evolves. We may discover that um, we need to invest more funds in a particular housing class and uh, we may need that flexibility to adapt and change and, and take that into account. Um, and then, you know, most importantly, time. Um, I know there was a deadline with our money um, that created, I won't speak to specific projects, but that created some less than ideal circumstances in terms of project selection, um, you know, ensuring that uh, there's time to both use the money and plan with the funds. I, I think those are some very important criteria to think about. Um, uh, with whatever funding is available to us and what may come in the future. Michelle, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I would second everything that Chair Christian just said. Um, in particular, the timing factor is an extremely important one um, as we're thinking about utilizing infrastructure funds in a way that's more equitable than perhaps any funding um, previously. True stakeholder engagement takes time. Mm -hmm. There's multiple folks you can call in a moment and, and receive lots of insights for, but it, if we truly are going to utilize this funding in such a way that um, addresses true barriers and engages communities, that time factor is going to be imperative. Um, one example that I'll, I'll utilize that is really not a product of um, the Infrastructure Act, but will assist in this, is that um, 
Last year, there was uh, the Conservation Improvement Program in Minnesota after years of um, stakeholder engagement was um, revised, innovated uh, to what's now called the ECO Act, and that includes provisions on all levels. Um, the area where I focus most is with the weatherization um, piece, and there are now provisions around um, pre-weatherization opportunities for income-eligible households. You pair that with the EPWEX components, that's fantastic, but yet there's still spaces, there's still barriers to be able to serve all communities and to be able to serve communities wholly. So um, in October of this year, we stood up a uh, working group that included legislators, included stakeholders, included community members and community advocates to really start delving deeper into programmatic inequities that we could do better service um, in areas of concentrated poverty, in areas of redlining districts, and really be able to think about how we can be the most equitable as possible through that program. Similarly, when we look at the state energy program, when we look at the grid resiliency, when we look at all these competitive opportunities, it's going to be imperative to have the time to build that stakeholder engagement so that we don't create, um, inadvertently create any additional problems, but rather um, remove any barriers that are already there. Yeah, I mean, you've both made really good points on that. And, and Terry, it makes me, uh, sorry, David, uh, it makes me think about, um, you know, engaging in, say, DOE, right? So these, these the program funds come through DOE. And I imagine DOE will solicit input uh, to write the rules uh, for funding some of these programs, particularly ones that are, that are newer. And I'm curious about, uh, you know, you've just heard a couple of points around flexibility, around timing. Um, how, you know, what is the way to engage with DOE? How do uh, folks like Michelle and your member companies and even commissions around the country or utilities or whoever need to, how do they engage to make sure that when these guidelines or rules are written, uh, it is done in a way that takes into account some of this feedback we've just heard of what's needed by the states to, to make sure they get it right? Great, great question, uh, Marissa. I think um, a couple of ways that we do it. First and foremost, we're proactive about it. Um, we've collected uh, at a high level a number of the recommendations, um, certainly not least of which are the kinds of ideas that Michelle just put, uh, put forward, which we see as a, a very high priority about giving the time to strategize and use the fund strategically for communities, for sectors of the uh, economy related to energy uh, that are underserved or overlooked uh, for one reason or another. And I think that's a key recommendation we provided. Flexibility um, uh, for the states, at least for the funds that they receive or would compete for, is another piece. Every state and community has a different set of needs. And uh, I'd give a lot of examples, but it, it, there's just such variation on the ground of what people need, how the money is used, and how it can be used best. And I think that flexibility is key. So we're proactively providing that on the sort of the, the bigger picture items. The other bigger picture item that we're conveying is that um, some of the items in the infrastructure bill are certainly medium to longer term. Transmission planning, um, in, unless you're in a very fortunate position, that is a medium to long term uh, uh, issue, distribution planning uh, similarly. Um, but there are some cases uh, where it's urgent. Um, you know, having a school that's efficient and has quality in, indoor air quality um, and allows students to get back to school um, for a variety of reasons, not just COVID, but just normal, uh, healthy classroom conditions. That's an urgent item. And we have a little time, but we don't have a lot of time. Um, and so I think bifurcating these is the other message that we're trying to deliver, that we need to move more quickly on some things than others. And states can help determine what that is with the Department of Energy. So there's that informal but proactive approach, and that's, that's ongoing and pretty constant. Uh, by sector. We're doing that in the electricity transmission distribution planning space. We're doing it in the transportation electrification area um, through our committees, through our staff, but in particular through members that are speaking up uh, and giving their views. 
In the formal process, there are certainly um, administrative issues that are a big challenge. Um, major components, nearly every part of the infrastructure bill has uh, Davis-Bacon uh, prevailing wage uh, requirements, which most states are, are, are very able and familiar with, uh, but guidance is needed to make sure that we're uh, uh, meeting those uh, requirements in an appropriate way. I think that's very doable. Um, the Buy America provision is particularly challenging because um, that provision of this bill does not follow the Buy American Act, which is a term of art in a specific act with some 50 years of guidance around it. Uh, the Buy America provisions of this bill don't have that um, structure. So we're concerned about, hey, how do we comply? We obviously want to have products made here in the United States. That's more than a goal. It's an important thing to achieve. But are there pinch points for critical materials, whether it's on the grid or, or a building, that we need to, to phase in over time uh, just to make these practical? So we're doing that in a proactive way primarily. We also are, are responding to formal requests for information. Uh, those are put out by the Department of Energy periodically. A few have come out already. Uh, we track those on a, a hub, a portal, and then as you know, a website associated with the infrastructure bill. Um, that's probably the easiest place to find it for those uh, listening um, to today's uh, discussion. That's great. Yeah, the Buy America provision you mentioned is interesting. When, you know, we've been talking about engaging with DOE, uh, where does NASIO engage on something like that? Is it a different uh, agency or is it within DOE? Um, both within DOE and the Office of Management of Budget and the White House, all three. Um, again, you know, being supportive, of course, but but we need some guidance because although some projects are longer term, some projects are not. There is an urgency and an expediency to um, electric uh, transportation uh, infrastructure, for example, where states most of the states have some kind of plan already. Uh, they have been working in this space for quite some time, uh, much as the uh, chair described in uh, New York and certainly in other states as well. Uh, so they're already moving forward. And so we need guidance in these areas quickly. We're communicating that to the Department of Transportation as well, where most of those EV funds are flowing. Um, there's a joint office between the Department of Energy and Department of Transportation that's been stood up um, that we've been communicating with directly. And so that's that's been how we've handled it. Some of it is in writing, but frankly, a lot of it is communicated orally um, uh, just for expediency's sake. That's very helpful. Thanks. Chairman, uh, you know, you were talking before about uh, New York's you know, ambitious policy plan and, and, and legislation that's already been passed. Uh, let's maybe shift for a moment just in terms of the, the true role of a utility commissioner um, and the commission itself in collaboration with DOE. Um, and state policy leadership, and, and even the utilities, sort of what, what is the role of, of the commissioners uh, and the commission staff uh, in, in terms of that collaboration around this, this, this legislation and, and funding that's come in? Hmm. So I'm, I'm trying to be careful with my words and, and, and what I can and cannot share. Um, so forgive me if I pause and edit myself mid-sentence. Um, you know, DPS staff, Department of Public Service staff, uh, do work regularly with members from the Department of Energy. Um, and you see evidence of this in some of the major planning initiatives that the state has engaged in over the past five, 10, 20 years, um, actually forever now. Uh, most recently, uh, reforming the Energy Vision, REV. Uh, through that process, we redefined um, how utilities can, uh, the business model for utilities, including um, uh, performance metrics, or earnings adjustment mechanisms, which are aligned with specific performance criteria. Um, and this is a transition and a shift from the traditional cost of service rate making work simply, this is what you need to invest in the grid. You'll be paid that amount. Now it's, are you achieving these specific performance metrics? Great, we'll provide you some additional compensation as a result. And that's important in that, you know, there was a recognition, and this recognition was built through conversations with DOE and others, um, that if we're going to move forward with these goals of increasing penetration of renewable energy, um, increasing use of distributed energy resources by residential and commercial customers, and essentially transitioning the grid from one that's built on the foundation of uh, centralized fossil fuel stations to a grid that's largely distributed where individuals can both take from the grid and provide back, 
you know, that wholesale transition requires more than simply a bit, little bit of technology and communications. It requires a complete rethinking of how we regulate, um, how we compensate, and how we work and interact with the utilities. And I would say that the DOE has been a part of that process. Um, and that's just one example of the many things that we do with the DOE. Um, but I, I would be remiss if I did not mention, you know, uh, our collaboration with other agencies. Uh, DPS is just one of the many agencies in the state engaged um, in this transition. Uh, we work with the Department of Environmental Conservation, um, and we also work with the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority um, to both develop and advance many of these goals. So uh, we try not to do things in isolation. We, we try to make sure that we understand both um, directionally, where are we trying to go, but then how do we get from A to Z? What's the path of least resistance, least cost? Um, and that relationship with DOE, and not just DOE, but other agencies, both federal and local, has been helpful in framing that up. That's really helpful. Thank, thank you for sharing that perspective. Uh, you manage your work fine, uh, quite honestly. <laughs> um, Michelle, I want to hit on something you mentioned earlier, and I think you maybe used the terminology around um, like sustaining these programs, and and I think you were touching on the fact that uh, you know there are workforce challenges. We have so many jobs that we need to fill to get this work done, uh, and we may not necessarily have enough people to do it. So training is going to be very important uh, in upskilling and, and and getting people ready to contribute and participate in this. Um, is there an element of what you are doing in Minnesota? And then I'd be interested, uh, David, in your perspective, too, just in general, what you're seeing across your members around getting the workforce uh, ready and engaged in this growth in clean energy. Certainly. Thank you for that question. You know, I um, started with the department working on training and workforce issues during ARA. And it was a much different time because there were so many folks on the bench uh, needing retraining. And then the money was coming at the same time as we were trying to train individuals up. I think with the infrastructure bill it and this time period, what we're seeing is significantly different. We're seeing some contractors that are leaving um, the networks that we typically have utilized. Uh, we see retirements, we see, you know, changes uh, based on the pandemic. Some of the conversations that are high school seniors that you can actually live in your small community, be in greater Minnesota and develop a career path in, in wind. Um, but there's also additional opportunity to engage um, trainers that perhaps we historically haven't to better engage and connect uh, with union shops that have significant training programs. And so we're doing some of that work and can take place. So housing authorities that uh, may already have skilled workers in one area, but may not be uh, uh, completely aware or familiar with some of the programs that we run can do training up there as well. So it's a kind of an above um, all hands on deck. One area in particular that's of interest is the local level. Um, some service providers really have been working on looking at uh, recipients. There could be training opportunities because the best way to reduce one's energy burden is both through efficiency and increased income. Are those shortages may intersect with opportunities for individuals that are either unemployed or underemployed into some of the, the very jobs that we're seeking to fill. Very, very, very interesting perspective and very helpful. Uh, David, what are you hearing from uh, other member states? Um, and very similar comments to uh, Michelle's. I guess the, the additional maybe examples or, or what I would expand on, you know, before COVID, we certainly had uh, a highly similar challenge. I think it is certainly uh, tougher now, but very similar with the unemployment rate as it was uh, at that point in the economy. I think one of the things that I'm hearing from our members in particular, uh, they're dealing with every aspect of this from uh, skilled trade, uh, lack of skilled trade workers for things like low income 
income weatherization or other building trades related to energy efficiency and renewable energy, uh, utility workers certainly, truck drivers for fuels and products, supply chain issues, engineers, PhDs, it really runs the gamut. Uh, one of the reasons NASIO became involved in leading the U.S. Energy Employment Report uh, with the states, that's a document that DOE has now taken uh, uh, over again. We carried it forward for about five years um, when uh, the Department of Energy had decided not to, to prepare that anymore. But it gives a, um, a very detailed snapshot of every energy job in the country, providing some clarity for state uh, workforce development and local workforce development and private workforce development uh, professionals looking at what areas need skills, where jobs are lacking the most. That's a, uh, not as uniform as it appears, uh, but I think that's one aspect and that continues to be important. The other one Michelle touched on, which is reaching people where they are. We've been uh, working through our equity committee, which Michelle co-chairs, to do workforce development recommendations, programs, and best practices that we're gleaning from states across the country. Uh, those have come out in the form of uh, several reports that are on the NASIO website, uh, reaching minority and underserved uh, communities. And uh, in, in that, again, runs the gamut from skilled trades to PhDs. We're working across the board with organizations trying to pull up examples where states are having some success or some progress. There's there is no silver sort of bullet to this. It is going to be a protracted problem. Um, and I think that's maybe the key key item. The last thing I would say on this, and I think it's an important one, and I, I, I guess for, for those people who need to have their skills uh, upgraded, if you will, so that they can have their um, incomes upgraded and have a better quality of life, better standard of living, I think that's an important area to address. And I do hear that from our members frequently. And that, that can fall again into the skilled trades areas of buildings with drive Drivers, but also certainly for entrepreneurs and innovators that are um, in university, students that are in university. Um, our member from Mississippi has a really amazing program, Inclusive Innovation, uh, working with uh, energy uh, innovators at the uh, bachelor, master's, and PhD level in Mississippi at historically, historically Black colleges and universities to help them go from innovator to entrepreneur. And I think that's a neat example where you know, that's a, a workforce that and, a, and, a, and an economic opportunity that nobody was paying attention to. And I, you know, we need to repeat that over and over again. So those are, those are solution sets. There aren't a lot of easy ones, um, uh, but I think uh, those are places we see as opportunities. I guess the last thing I would say is clearly the private sector is, is leading in training. And I think we do need to find better ways to partner with them. I think historically, we have a pretty good track record with our electric and gas utilities. I think they've been proactive. Some of the energy services companies proactive, but I, I'm sure there's more we can do in that space. Um, and I, one of the places that NASIO has been thinking about and begun talking with our members about are increasing the partnerships between state energy offices and state labor departments. We have some great examples in a number of states, and we think there might be some, some more fertile ground there. Um, excellent. I, I really love to hear about that. Okay, for the audience, just a reminder, uh, if you have questions, put them in the Q&A, and we will continue to source them. So thanks for those who have so far. Um, you know, touching on uh, the job pieces, and we started to get to the point of, you know, how do we engage and serve diverse and disadvantaged communities? Many states certainly have passed legislation or, or put in place policy initiatives to emphasize the need to, to really include underserved residences and small businesses uh, in this energy transition and, and drive employment opportunities there. Um, you know, we know the Biden administration has rolled out Justice 40, uh, which is a really critical element of all of this policy and spend that is uh, coming out of the administration. Um, you know, there are many uh, important objectives tied to that. I'm wondering if, if you might each just touch on how states can, can take advantage of this. Like, how do we, how are you starting to see and how do we make sure that we really um, see Justice 40 take hold uh, from the federal government and down into at the state level. Do you want to start maybe, uh, David? Sure. Happy to start with that. I think first and foremost, uh, calling people's attention to it was important. We, we need to move on to action. I think from a state energy office, NASIO perspective, uh, that attention has been going on for now a number of years and states are acting. I think one of the ways with regard to the infrastructure bill and just federal funding in general um, is setting metrics, uh, whether it's Justice 40 metrics or environmental equity metrics. There, are, I think, are a range of, of metrics to be addressed. 
both in terms of how money is deployed for projects, but also measuring where we are um, and how we um, how we reach communities and, and how we prioritize those. So some metrics around that are important. And I think um, I think others can speak to that probably better than I can. I think the other piece is to recognize um, something that Michelle said earlier, that real stakeholder engagement takes a little time. And I think one of the important metrics here is who are states or private companies for that matter, reaching out to and how are they reaching out to them and what are they hearing back? Are they listening um, uh, to those opportunities? And I, that's a different, maybe that's not a metric, but it's a it's a different measure. And then, and then setting ourselves on a more aggressive timetable to reach a particular goal. And I think we need to set some collective goals um, uh, from the federal government, uh, from state governments. A, a great way to do that would be some sort of a challenge um, from various agencies, say from the Department of Energy, um, maybe there's a, a state private sector DOE challenge around uh, reaching Justice 40 goals with some specific objectives in different areas. I think that would be a great way to bring visibility to it. And maybe it's not a mandate, but uh, but uh, but hold people accountable to the goals that they said that they were going to make. I think those are some ways that that I'm hearing um, from our members' suggestions. That's a little meat around it. I'm paraphrasing their comments, but um, to me, that would be a great uh, start at this. Uh, we do have um, some recommendations pending. Uh, we're developing through our equity committee and our board uh, that we're going to share with the Department of Energy uh, in early February in that regard, just to kind of get the ball rolling. Yeah, it's really well said. I mean, stakeholder input, I think it'll be iterative as the guidelines get get developed around this and the metrics. Uh, it's important and it, it shouldn't be just sort of done and fixed. I think it ought to be iterative. Chairman, I mean, certainly stakeholder input is a huge part of any kind of regulatory development, but in particular, um, how is Justice 40 factoring into what you're looking at and, uh, you know, how, how you're guiding and leading the activities in the state uh, for your agency? Well, first, I think it's important to highlight, you know, the passage of the, uh, the, clean, the Climate Leadership and Community Preservation Act, the CLCPA in New York State. Um, much of the goals that we're striving to achieve are founded in that act, and they are inclusive of the Justice 40 principles. Um, one key consideration is that um, embedded in the law, 40% of the benefits from investments we're going to be making in clean energy must accrue in disadvantaged communities. Now, we haven't fully defined what disadvantaged communities are just yet. If it's too broad, then it's the entire state. Um, if it's too narrow, then that necessarily may not necessarily uh, reach uh, the individuals and the households that we want to ensure get these benefits. So that's being framed out now through the CLCPA process. And for those unaware, uh, we recently released a draft scoping plan um, towards the end of last year, which is available for public review and input, and we want that public review and feedback. Um, so in many ways, we, we've created a, a way to have that public engagement. Um, one of the key things about the CLCPA, which I, I'm very happy about, um, you know, uh, environmental justice groups are participants from the very beginning. Um, so oftentimes you'd have a law passed and you know, only at the end, once it's being implemented or before it's finally coming before uh, the legislator, uh, will the environmental justice community have an opportunity to opine on it? Uh, the CLCPA has changed that entirely. And now, from the very beginning, they are framing uh, the direction of what we're trying to accomplish. So I think that's a huge accomplishment um, in New York and, and really reinforces uh, what Michelle has been saying earlier about getting involvement early and often. You know, this is not a one-year process. This is a multi-year process that will continue on uh, for a very long time. Um, and the scoping plan is just one of the many things that will be developed as a result. Um, but one of the things that I think is important on workforce development in particular um, it, it's important to recognize organizations and uh, outfits that have been engaged in this space um, and understand, you know, this is not something we're just trying to figure out. Uh, but in, in New York, I can speak to two organizations, for example, Sustainable South Bronx um, and Green City Force uh, that have done a lot from the workforce development perspective uh, to educate and train and have individuals be placed in uh, high-paying uh, long-term employment opportunities. And I, I'm willing to bet money Franklin has uh, engaged with one, if not both of those organizations over the years. Um, 
And, and I think the key thing, it's, it's one thing to have these organizations exist, train individuals, get them aware of the opportunities, but it's another thing to you know, train these individuals and then have no work. Um, you know, we in New York are, are trying to send as many signals as possible that there are opportunities here. Um, you know, it, it's not just we have this lofty goal of 2050 achieving these various metrics. We have these intermediate goals as well and specific targets for specific sectors. Uh, the governor just recently announced um, her efforts on electrification uh, to electrify one million homes um, and have another million be made ready for electrification at some point in the future. Uh, that's several hundred thousand homes a year that we're talking about. And I think currently we're on pace to do maybe 20, 25,000 a year right now. So that's a significant increase on an annual basis. Uh, we're going to need a labor force uh, to meet that need. And, you know, everyone from, to what David was saying earlier, from, you know, field labor individuals to go into homes and actually do the work, uh, analysts, uh, PhDs, and everything in between. So, you know, in addition to creating the workforce, sending the signals that it's needed, you know, we, we're trying to create an environment a holistic environment where once it's all happening, uh, the benefits are also equitable and uh, not concentrated on any one particular group. Thanks, Chairman. Michelle, um, Justice 40, how is that factoring into all the good work that you and your team are doing? Yes, yeah, so um, I really appreciate both Chair Christian's and uh, David's comments. I would say that uh, New York is uh, kind of a shining example of legislation around Justice 40, and that's that's fantastic. I think in um, Minnesota, while we don't have that uh, specific uh, type of legislation, there is some uh, really strong work being done across the state in relationship that's been taking place for a number of years now um, in having formal tribal consultations with the 11 uh, sovereign nations that share geographic borders with Minnesota. There's more to be done, um, obviously, there and in other communities that Justice 40 really is meant to um, support. And one of the areas that we've been pursuing is uh, a community energy collaborative, because there's really two things that are really striking me right now. One is reciprocity. It does not work if we're continuously reaching out to communities and asking for their opinion without making sure that that relationship is reciprocal in nature, meaning that individuals are paid for their time and expertise that they're sharing with us. So in the implementation of the Infrastructure Act, we're in development of this community energy collaborative that is and will be a formalized process, reciprocal in nature, developed by the very communities that Justice 40 served, um, aims to serve. The other piece that I just will highlight maybe more so on the um, working with other states as well, uh, through the equity committee, through our Midwest um, work, what we're seeing is the need for flexibility, recognizing that some states already have very defined metrics and other states need opportunities and ideas for how to best implement. And depending on the funding, just to get really brass tacks for a minute, um, I think it's important for flexibility too, in order to be able to incorporate measures in an effective way. So for instance, um, we recently, as of January 5th, launched a Solar for Schools program. It is through funding from the legislature, from the state legislature. Um, so there weren't any required Justice 40 metrics, but there was a statement that said that the grants would be funded equivalent to the financial need of the school. Well, how do you define that, right? It took some digging, some conversations with our partners over at the Minnesota Department of Education, looking at um, a number of different metrics that they utilize in order to hopefully uh, develop a really effective, equitable distribution of funding that wouldn't necessarily meet the exact language if there was one um, set like 40% of all the funds need to go. In this case, what we did was said, 
the school that has the strongest financial need will receive the strongest financial benefit. So up to 95% of a grant can, or 95% of the cost of a system install can go to that school, whereas a school that really does not need, have that financial need, would have a significantly lower. That overlays with Justice 40, but it doesn't replace Justice 40, right? There's still a significant kind of next step that we can go. And so when I say flexibility, I don't mean a loosening. I mean a meeting states where they're at and pushing us to go further each step of the way and really utilizing the infrastructure funds to um, to go a lot further than than perhaps anyone in the nation has gone yet. Great example. Thank you for sharing that. We are coming up on the end of our time, so maybe I'll just do a quick round robin for each of you. Uh, you know, I, I think it's very hard to leave, read the tea leaves as to whether the Build Back Better Act will pass. Uh, it changes day to day. Um, and so certainly that would have an effect on the pace of the energy transition. But in the event that it doesn't, maybe if you, each of you could just comment to wrap this up for your, your level of optimism, given what we have seen so far coming out of the administration and coming to your states or, uh, you know, how optimistic are you and how do you see the pace of this transition happening? David, you want to start? Sure, happy to jump in. I think um, focusing mostly on the transition and where we are, I, I, whether the Build Back Better uh, uh, bill moves forward or not uh, is, is a flip of a coin, I don't know. I do know that there are key tax components in there that, uh, that are still missing uh, from the infrastructure equation, so I am hopeful about that. But irrespective of that, I, I'm pretty optimistic in that many, many states and private companies were making the kind of energy investments, clean energy investments that were needed before the infrastructure bill. The infrastructure bill provided some really key catalyst and strategic funding um, in uh, transmission distribution planning, in resilience, in uh, low and moderate income uh, energy areas, in uh, electrification in, in some regard. And I think um, I think those components are, uh, are are being really helpful in leveraging more private and more state money. So I am pretty optimistic. I, I guess the, the only pessimism I have is just, you know, having enough qualified workers to help get us from A to B um, in a reasonable manner. And maybe the tension uh, between the infrastructure bill was envisioned to be, you know, five years, uh, in some cases more in length and planning. And, and that, I think, was a huge improvement over what happened in ARA. Uh, the only concern I have is there is always a, a small P and a large P political tension of, of re-elections and elections, both at the local, state, and federal level, and we'll need to show progress. And so I think I'm optimistic we're going to get a lot of value out of this bill, and I think a lot of a lot of good delivered to every part of the economy and, and the electorate. Um, and I think we'll we'll figure this out, the workforce piece. At least that's my optimism. I think that's our, our tough job um, uh, of the next year or so to try to navigate that particular piece. Michelle, how about your thoughts? Well, I too uh, do not have predictions on Build Back Better, though I do look to NASIO and the leadership that they really provide around informing states, but also affiliates. So I just give a plug if you aren't part of the NASIO network to join it. Um, the piece of optimism for me really resides in seeing the multi-level approach towards clean energy. We're seeing movement at the utility level. We're seeing movement at the local level. We're seeing movement at the state and now federal level. The fact that it is not sitting or residing with one agency or one community or one type of community that across the board, we're seeing significant movement in um, pursuit of clean energy activities, access, um, affordability, all of the components that we really need to think about um, is definitely uh, a means and reason for optimism. Amen to your words. I will agree with you. Chairman Christian, last thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I too will not opine on whether Build Back Better will materialize. Um, but what I can say is, you know, the benefits of federal aid should not be underestimated. Um, uh, federal funds can either uh, make a project happen, um, giving that much needed catalyst to uh, jumpstart something that hasn't necessarily been 
uh, moving forward at the pace needed, or can make something already happening a lot cheaper. Um, you know, we're over the next few months, we're going to be highlighting a number of different CLCPA related initiatives. And as those costs come in, you know, they could be significantly offset by a Build Back Better program or something like that. Um, and, you know, this would make it much more affordable for ratepayers in the near term and potentially accelerate the transition a lot faster uh, than we currently predict. Um, and ultimately, the faster we can make this transition happen, uh, the better ultimately will be. Um, you know, carbon reduced today is more valuable than carbon reduced tomorrow. Um, and we try to emphasize that point throughout. And so yeah, uh, more money the feds can send our way, the better off everything will be. And uh, not just New York, of course, every other state, but I have a soft spot for New York. So. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Well, I think maybe in a year's time, you get this band back together and see how things are progressing uh, across your organization states. It would be great. I thank you for your time today, your comments, your insights. It was really engaging. And I thank the audience for your question contributions. And we will talk with you on the next Impact Cafe, which will be coming up in the next couple of months. So you can find the recording for this one on our website, franklinenergy.com, within the next day. Thank you for joining us for Impact Cafe. Franklin Energy delivers more than 100 turnkey energy efficiency and grid optimization programs for utility partners across North America. We work alongside our sister company, AM Conservation, who manufactures and supplies more than 300 energy efficiency and water conservation products. We help our energy partners achieve their goals with solutions implemented by more than 1,300 energy experts. Watch out for our next Impact Cafe to join our ongoing conversation. To make sure you're always a part of the conversation, follow Franklin Energy on LinkedIn and Twitter for updates. See you at the next Impact Cafe.